Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. If you've listened to this show for a long time, you know we know we do a lot of shows about music, ranging from our annual Song of the Summer show and our jazz roundup show to songs uh, shows about yodeling, entire show about yodeling or about whistling or about a musical instrument like the banjo or the accordion. Um, we love to talk about music and all of its animating possibilities. I don't think we've ever talked before, though, about the idea of genres themselves as defining aspects of music. But our guest today has written a book about exactly that. Uh, it's about seven genres, rock, R&B, country, punk, hip-hop, dance, and pop. We're going to talk about all that, whether genres even make any sense anymore. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. So that's a song called Shine by Robert Glasper featuring D. Smoke and Tiffany Goosh. Um, and we're playing it because we're going to talk about music genres today. And I would say 
So what what genre is that? Robert Glasper is nominally a jazz artist, uh, but for a long time uh, he's been messing around with uh, hip hop people and with rhythm and blues people, and that song is kind of all three of those things: jazz and R and B uh, and and hip hop. Uh, in some ways, it's a very challenging and interesting time to talk about genres, and that's exactly what we're going to do right now with uh, Kelafasane, uh, who's the author of Major Labels: A History of Popular Music in Seven Genres, and a staff writer at the New Yorker. Many people would certainly place him at the forefront of music writers today, including me, many people including me. And what makes it so exciting is it brings together um, Califasane, really, you know, arguably the best popular writer about popular music in America, with me, formerly the worst rock critic in America, late <laughs> 70s, early 80s. Uh, I don't think anybody could touch me in terms of overall cluelessness uh, as I wrote about rock music. I, for example, uh, did not think that U2 was going to be popular. And I told Bono if he continued to sing like that, he would lose his voice. Um, <laughs> it gives you kind of a sense of my prescience. Um, so, so exciting to talk to you. I've been a big fan of your writing for a really long time. And this book is great. Thanks so much. And, and thanks for that introduction. You've, you've hit on one of the issues of, of music criticism, which is what does it mean to be a bad music critic? And I would say that actually prescience is not necessarily the most important thing that music critics do. In fact, I think if you're a music critic who's unusually good at figuring out which bands are going to be huge, you should quit your job and go get a job <laughs> where you can earn a lot more money. <laughs> well, yeah, absolutely. The, uh, and and I mean, the other thing about this, and it's a point that you make in the book, too, is if you're wrong this year, keep the opinion five years later, it'll kind of round into a kind of currency. I mean, you two, you know, kind of there are a lot of people now who just aren't into you two at all and have all kinds of major objections to them. And as you point out in the book, you know, Britney Spears went from being this kind of, you know, vapid pop star, the kind of symbol of a lot of stuff that might be wrong with pop music to a much more, you know, acceptance of, of her legitimacy. And now, of course, she's a martyr. So. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and one of my most controversial opinions is that music critics are people <laughs> and like most people, we like being part of a community sometimes and we like being out of step with the community sometimes. I think you could say something similar about musicians and something similar about listeners. So we are all of us always trying to find ways to figure out what the consensus is and how we can maybe be part of that consensus or how we can maybe set ourselves apart from that consensus. So one of the things that uh, you uh, delineate so so masterfully is this kind of interesting tension in, in music. I mean, on the one hand, popular music, as the name would even suggest, wants to be a thing that would bring us together. Um, and, and, and so it's, you know, it's the height of pop music in a way. If everybody at a wedding goes out on the dance floor and Uptown Funk is playing and everybody kind of knows the song or blurred lines and your grandmother's singing it and she doesn't know what rhymes with hug me. But uh, you're like, that's a good thing, you know. But there's also a right. way in which pop music kind of re reinforces the identity of musical and cultural enclaves. And that's kind of where genre comes in, correct? Yeah, exactly. And, and different genres have different relationships to this, to the mainstream. You know, for me, it was punk rock, which I discovered when I was 14. And that was it. I was like, I'm only going to listen to punk rock. I'm not going to ever listen to anything that's not punk rock. I'm never listening to the Rolling <laughs> Stones again. You know, that didn't turn out to be true exactly, but it did turn out to truly reflect something about me in that moment. So some genres take that very seriously. Other genres 
are a little more populist, right? You think about R&B, you think about country music, which are very much about pleasing their audiences. And so in that sense, you know, they don't have gatekeepers in the same way. It's not about being obscure. It's about making hits. Although making hits can be another way of being a little bit exclusive, right? If you're in a genre where the top stars are the ones who make hits, that's very democratic because the people get to decide what they like. But it also means that if you're not making hits, maybe you're not so relevant to that genre. And, uh, you know, Aretha Franklin is a good example, you know, one of the great voices of all time. But she never stopped paying attention to the R&B charts because it was important to her to be making R&B hits. And there was part of her that was kind of competitive or very competitive and always thought, how come that's not my song on the radio in rotation? And, you know, you would think Aretha Franklin would have much better things to worry about, right? Why does she need to be validated by a, an R&B hit? But that was important to her. And again, it goes back to this idea of community. Are you part of a community? Are you pleasing the people in your community? How do you think of yourself? And, and part of the reason why we love music and love to argue about music is because we use music to to figure out how we think about ourselves and other people. It's more social than most other art forms, and, and therefore our arguments about it tend to be social as well or antisocial. Right. And I, I think also the more that a genre feels like a counterculture, uh, feels to itself like a counterculture, the more they're going to police their own borders uh, and the more they're going to enforce a kind of orthodoxy, some of which will be anti-commercialism, right? I mean, it's sort of not very punk, punk rock to have a top 10 hit. And to a certain degree, you know, I mean, to whatever degree a, a, a real country artist starts to cross over, a lot of questions get asked by a kind of more core orthodox country uh, audience. And probably the, the, the group of people who does this the most or used to do it the most would be jazz people, right? We're going to end the show today, spoiler, with Cassandra Wilson, a jazz singer, singing Last Train to Clarksville, which is an old monkey's tune. Well, like, there's jazz people who just will say, you're banned from jazz for you sang a monkey's song. Maybe you can talk right. a little bit about that, that kind of norm enforcing and the insistence on staying in enclave. Well, yeah, there's, there, but the, the interesting thing is there's there's no way really of getting away from norms or getting away from hierarchies, right? You might be a punk rock band with no interest in making a pop song, but you probably do have an interest in being included in a punk magazine, right? You probably mm -hmm. do have an interest in being asked to play a big punk festival, maybe being asked to play on the main stage or being asked to play last in a in a big punk festival. So there are <laughs> hierarchies everywhere. And just because you don't, think of yourself as someone who would get played on mainstream radio stations in the old days, that doesn't mean that you aren't nevertheless searching for a certain kind of popularity. Um, you know, what you say about jazz, it's a good example of something that often happens where sometimes uh, these rules are musical, right? You see this in country music. Country music should sound like X. It should have, you know, mandolins and banjo and pedal steel and fiddles. Like there's a traditional instrumentation and this is the way the music should sound. And if your music sounds, if your music sounds different from that, we're going to maybe look askance at you. But there's a totally different way to think about country music, which is you can think about country music as being devoted to an audience. And if you think about that and you think of it more as a culture, then you actually get a little more musical freedom, right? You can be Blake Shelton rapping. And you can be Dolly Parton making a disco record nine to five. But as long as you seem culturally in tune with the audience, you have more musical freedom. So often it's a push and a pull. And often when artists have more freedom or a community gives people more freedom in one area, 
they there's less freedom or, or a desire to conform or an expectation of conformity in another area, right? You knock some wall down and another wall springs up somewhere else because those walls are part of what makes it feel like a community. Part of what people love about country music, part of what people love about hip hop is that it feels like a culture. And in order for it to feel like a culture, it has to do these two things at once. It has to be inclusive and exclusive. It has to pull some people in while pushing some people out. And there's lots of different ways to do that. But you have to do it somehow, because if you have a if you have a community that includes everyone and excludes no one, it's not really a community at all. That's just, you know, planet Earth. Although it could be argued, and this is a perfect segue for us now, that um, the first genre you focus on, rock, was for a while the community that included not everyone, for example, not my parents. I should say I'm way older than you are. As far as I'm concerned, you're the kid I used to see at Rhymes Records and, and Cutler's. <laughs> Rhymes. In <New> Haven. <laughs> yeah, I think you're the kid who used to be hanging around Rhymes when I would come yeah. in there. Yeah. So, um, but, so let's just listen to you know a song from kind of the age, as you say, of rock stars. This particular rock star would be Jadis Joplin. She's singing a song, actually, that's arguably almost a country song. Busted flat in Baton Rouge Waiting for a train And I was feeling near as faded as my jeans Bobby thumbed a diesel down Just before it rained And rode us all the way into New Orleans I pulled my harpoon Out of my dirty red bandana So, Calavasane, you know, this is... This is the age of rock stars right here. You know, I mean, she's Absolutely. singing She's singing a country song. I mean, Down on Me is not a country song, uh, but she's singing a country song. Maybe we could sort of talk about this period where, where the notion of a rock star was essentially encoded. Yeah, I mean, the, the notion of a rock star kind of comes a little bit later than a lot of people would think. The, the phrase is not super common in the 1960s. Um, it's not used that often. And where you start to see it is after the deaths of a number of people, after the deaths of Janis Joplin and Jimi Hendrix and Jim Morrison, um, you start seeing New York Times uses the term rock star. And so rock star is this term that indicates a few different things, right? One, it indicates the idea that these figures are going to be glamorous. Their lives are going to be maybe decadent, maybe dangerous, right? That all kind of comes together in that moment. But it also, there is this musical shift from the kind of rock and roll rhythm and blues 60s to the rock music 70s. And, and part of what I mean is that in the 60s, some of this stuff was a little more jumbled up. When people talked, when Time Magazine talks about the rock and roll revolution, they were talking about the Rolling Stones, but they were also talking about the Supremes. And there was this idea that, you know, Motown and the Beatles and all this stuff was maybe sort of part of the same music. In the 70s, that really starts to split. And and this, and yes, rock and roll is everywhere, but you increasingly get this idea that rock and roll is white music. And this idea that black performers are going to be largely considered R&B or even soul music. By the time those Janis Joplin records come out, soul is starting to replace R&B as the term that a lot of these musicians love. And maybe partly because soul seems a little less like something you dabble in and a little more like something you are. It's linked to culture, linked to identity, linked to politics. Um, 
from. And so you are, even at that moment, starting to see a split between what rock and roll means and what R&B means. And so often these moments that we think of as everyone coming together are also moments when things are starting to kind of break apart. And, and along with this notion of rock, and one could argue that a genre so vast as to include James Taylor and Nirvana uh, is no genre at all, that is sort of de- <laughs> yeah. desperately in need of subgenres. But one of the. Well, yeah. 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 Well, go ahead. Well, no, that, that and that's one way rock and roll survives, right? Is by is by fragmenting into all these different subgenres. And and you know, you know, Ellen Ellen Willis, I think it was, was writing in the seventies about like, well, what would it take for rock and roll to feel like a community again? It's so big, and 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 you know, one answer is it kind of moves into subgenres, and then it kind of shrinks in various ways. And like, if you're a metalhead, that might feel more like a community. And then of course, metal divides into subgenres. So there was this kind of ongoing search for community that you see in subgenres in rock and roll. And even, you know, at various moments, one thing or the other is emphasized, right? By the, by the end of the 70s, it feels like a lot of this stuff is coming together. The Rolling Stones are making a disco record. Diana Ross is doing disco. Bee Gees, Rod Stewart, you know, Star Wars is going disco. And it feels like everything's coming together on the dance floor, right? And it's a moment of, of thinking, oh, maybe these genre distinctions are sort of fading. And then, of course, you see this tremendous backlash to disco because people want their own thing again and they don't want to be on the dance floor with John Travolta and the Bee Gees. And so, you know, you see this back and forth over and over again. And it makes more sense if you think of a genre as a community, because if you use that word community instead of genre, then you realize like, oh, well, yeah, of course, we're never going to be free of communities. We're never going to be rid of communities. There's never going to be a time when we don't think about wanting to join and think about wanting to rebel from communities. They're always going to be with us in different forms. Yeah, and I, but I also, boy, I could talk to you for three hours about all this stuff, but, um, you know. How long we got? <laughs> nothing, <laughs> nothing resembling that. So, um, so yeah, I mean, and, and I think also, just to, give the, just to just jump on the example that you just gave, sometimes it's not about a community, it's about being against a community. So, you know, the, the Disco Sucks movement led by Steve Dahl, as you write about in your book and other people, I, I don't think that was like, you know, in order to up, uphold the, um, the preeminence of, I don't know, Bruce Springsteen or anybody in particular. <laughs> it was about really kind of hating on a kind of music that was, I think, associated with people of color, was associated with gay people. It was like, you know, it was hating on uh, uh, an enclave rather than, I think, embracing positively anything else. But you, you may well, see it I, another I way. I think it was both because disco was so big that it was many things at once, right? It mm-hmm. certainly was queer performers. It was performers of color. It was, you know, Latin influence happening. All this stuff was happening, but it was also white celebrities, right? So for the people that when they have this, this anti-disco, this disco sucks riot in Chicago and people are burning their disco records, like the face of disco in a sense is as much John Travolta and Studio 54 and, you know, kind of celebrity culture. And out of that, I think comes both, right? This this sort of the anti-social urge to like destroy disco, like part of that was an idea of like, let's get back to rock and roll, right? The knack come out around then. <laughs> and the idea is the knack are going to be the great rock band that's going to push back against disco. And you had, you know, Tom Petty is starting to get big. And, and the, the Tom Petty thing is like, let's get back to just regular, real American rock and roll. So there really was that. But there was also a pushback in the underground, right? A lot of the people who were making 
underground dance records, they were sick of the celebrity disco culture too. And they said, no, we're going to focus on real serious dancing, right? And out of that movement, you get house music and you get techno music and you get all this electronic dance music that flows. So often both of those things are happening at once. You know, defining yourself against something can also be a way of defining yourself with something, you know, just as it was, I'm sure, for some of the anti-disco people, and certainly as it was for me doing my own little anti-Rolling Stones movement from my bedroom in Hamden as a teenager and uh, embracing embracing punk rock. So those things can happen. And, and what you mentioned in terms of the idea that there might be some resentment, the idea that there might be people... Um, perceiving that disco is this music of people of color or, or, or queer people like, yeah, of course, that's that's part of it, too. I think music often reflects our resentments as much as it reflects our aspirations and it's divisive in all sorts of ways. So I don't I don't want to suggest that the backlash against disco was somehow innocent, because generally I think that things that happen in popular music tend not to be innocent because they tend to reflect all the different things that exist in our society. Yeah, I, I'd just like to say for any listener who's t- having a little bit of trouble placing the knack, the knack were famous for their hit "My Sharona" and essentially nothing else. Uh, yeah, that was it. And that, and that was a really hard song to dance to, right? If you wanted to sort of, I mean, if you think about it, you can't really dance to that song very easily. Um, and, and and it was like almost just shut up or do some kind of very stilted kind of thing and and leave and, us alone. And they were promoted as like leading a rock and roll revival. Yeah. Right. Which like which 10 years earlier would have been a completely mystifying idea. Right. The idea that rock and roll needs to be revived would have seemed absurd a decade earlier. But suddenly in the wake of disco, there is this idea that rock and roll is on the ropes and needs to come back. Right. And rock and roll has been being revived and re-revived ever since. So one of the things that's sort of uh, percolating under this, and it's a, a term that you're very kind of famous for writing about, is this term that, uh, of rockism. And as far as I can R tell, word. Yeah, the R word. And so it, it, it seems to me in some ways that the, the through line, both for rockism to a certain degree, but also for the rock genre, what ultimately unites the rock genre, it seems to me the idea of authorship and performance being done by the same people that and that that is the defining and and deal-breaking question of authenticity Uh, the proof of authenticity is you write your own music and then you sing your own music Uh, but it's also led to I mean a, a kind of sort of rock supremacy right yeah, I mean, so rockism is this term that um, starts percolating in the British press in the 1980s in the kind of new wave movement. Uh, I wrote an essay about it in the New York Times in the 2000, in 2004, trying to sort of maybe introduce it to some American readers who hadn't been following along. And the idea of rockism, it emerges at this moment when there are all these so-called pop groups. I'm talking about Boy George, Human League, you know, <laughs> Flock of Seagulls, ABC, Haircut 100, all these, these British bands with colored hair. And it kind of emerges out of the punk movement. But a lot of these people are saying, wait a second, what's so great about rock and roll? We're sick of rock and roll. We're sick of this thing with like sweaty guys in jeans and guitars. Like this is boring. We're going to make pop music. We're going to make something that's colorful, that's fun, that's upbeat, that doesn't take itself too seriously. And, and you know, this has not all of these groups end up being huge successes, but this idea that like rock and roll isn't as cool as it thinks it is and that we should stop thinking of rock and roll as the uh, as the ideal to which all other genres should aspire. 
This turned out to be a really influential idea because it gets at this question of what is it that we want from music? How do we judge music? How, what, what do we value in music? You mentioned this idea of, you know, that's often associated with the Beatles of wanting to performers to write their own material, right? Mm -hmm. So you'd be skeptical not of, of anyone who has professional songwriters as pop stars sometimes do writing their songs or anyone who's, you know, reliant on cover versions. And there's all, there's many versions of this, right? Are we valuing albums instead of singles? Are we valuing live performances instead of music videos? Are we valuing guitars over keyboards or sampling or other electronic forms of music making? And so, you know, this is something that people have been wrestling with ever since. What is it that we think is good about music? What are we celebrating and what are we not celebrating? At the time I wrote about rockism in the Times in 2004, you know, one of the ideas I had was that we should be celebrating groups like Destiny's Child instead of just thinking they're kind of like a silly girl group, you know. I think that's been rectified yes. to a large extent. Beyonce is probably <laughs> the right. most uh, celebrated and admired musician on the planet. But that said, we're always doing this, right? It, it, by it, Whatever music we love or we celebrate, we're always elevating some things and we're uh, we're relegating other things to the margin or ignoring other things entirely. And part of the question that I've, I've always tried to ask as, as a music writer, but also just as a listener, is what are we ignoring and why? Right. I, I didn't even know that about Destiny's Child. I was so worried about the Carter family that I signed up for Tidal. That's my uh, streaming service because I thought, you know, Califasana. <laughs> support the Carters. Yeah, Califasana says these people are getting totally overlooked. So, um, so we have to take a break. I'm really sorry because I could talk about this part for a long time too. But let's go out with some people who I think sort of meet most of the uh, minimum daily adult requirements for being rock stars. They are known uh, as the Rolling Stones. A glass of wine in her hand I knew she was gonna meet her connection At her feet was a footloose man You can't always get what you want You can't always get what you want mentioned this song, but uh, it'll get us into country a little bit. We're talking to Kelly Fasane. Uh, his new book is Major Labels, a history of popular music uh, in seven genres, rock, R&B, country, punk, hip-hop, dance, 
pop. Uh, he writes for The New Yorker. Uh, it's exciting to talk to him. Um, so I have to say that I had this experience where my significant other, my partner, my life partner, was in the hospital, in various hospital facilities with some pretty severe medical problems for 10 and a half months. And for a long time, I couldn't visit her at all because of COVID restrictions. And then I got in, and for a while, she had who's been deprived by one of the treatments or one of the therapies. She couldn't talk. She couldn't talk. She'd been bedridden for nine months, eight, nine months, something like that. And I brought in playlists, and we just started listening to music together. And I looked up one day, the, maybe the first day I did it, and she, I, we were, the, the, what was on the speaker was this Alison Krauss version of an old song, I went down to the river to pray, studying about them good old ways. And who can wear that starry crown? It's in O Brother, Where Art Thou? And I, I looked up and she was mouthing, my partner was mouthing the words, word for word for word for word. And that kind of launched us into listening to all kinds of music that we loved across different genres. But it was interesting that country kind of got us going first. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, California, there's sort of a way in which Country music is one is maybe the one where people feel okay being prejudiced against it. Like if you say I hate hip hop, people are going to think maybe you're a little bit racist or something like that. Uh, right. But you can say I hate country, I won't listen to it. Three chords and the truth. Well, I don't like those chords, uh, and and people will go, well, yeah, me neither. And that's sort of a weird thing. Uh, maybe just react to that. Well, I, I think what I hear often is people saying. I hate this kind of country music, but I like that thing. Yeah. I hate what's on the radio, but I love Johnny Cash or, mm. or whatever the case may be. Right. And I think that, you know, that's because compared to rock and roll, country music has been quite progressive. What I mean is like, if you think of it like a rock band, we know what's supposed to be in a rock band, right? It's a drummer, a bass guitarist, a guitarist or two, and uh, maybe a keyboard player and a lead singer where country music there's an ongoing argument about even what instruments are supposed to be there, right? There was a time when drums weren't allowed on the stage of the Grand Ole Opry, right? There was a time when Nashville country meant string sections, and then the string sections kind of went out. Sometimes they use fiddles. There's different moments where it's more keyboard-driven or electric guitars allowed. Um, You know, now you're hearing hip-hop beats in country music. So country music really has kept changing. And I think as a result, there have always been people who say the current incarnation of country music, popularly defined, the most popular country songs in America, are like terrible or are not real country <laughs> or don't reflect the history of this music. And, and that has some that has something to do with the way that the music has kept evolving and kept serving its audience, even as there's also this kind of ongoing debate about, well, who is the country audience, right? You know, empirically, you can say there is a group of people who define themselves as country fans. Many of them listen to country radio stations and go to country concerts. And in a sense, the genre's mainstream is all about figuring out what those people want and giving it to them. And, you know, that provides a certain amount of freedom, because as long as those people are into it, it's country music. That's one definition of it. Um, there's another definition that, that you alluded to, maybe that's a little more old fashioned. Right. And, and Alison Krauss is a good example of that. And a lot of the music that she's made draws from traditions. And she's part of a whole community of people that are drawing from some older traditions in American roots music, American folk music, even if they're not necessarily making country hits. So it has these competing definitions. And because it has this strong cultural identity, I think people in some parts of the country feel or some 
um, some neighborhoods maybe even feel feel confident or or feel fine saying I don't like that stuff. Again, I think it's very neighborhood specific, right? I think there's certainly places you could go where people would be happy to tell you they hate hip hop because hip hop obviously has its own very close cultural connotations. And and I think even now there is some of this, especially among people who don't write about music for a living. Um, I write in the book a little bit about snobbery, and no one wants to be accused of being a music snob, but I think the term is actually hard to define. I, I think it, I think anyone who has opinions about music might justifiably be accused of being a snob. And often the, the snobbiest fans are the ones who, not the people who write about music for a living, but more casual listeners who just say, I don't like that stuff. I don't like any of that stuff. I don't like any of that country music. And, you know, there's part of me that could say, well, tell me what you do like, and I bet you I could find you something in the country tradition you would sort of enjoy. And another part of me thinks that's okay. You don't have to listen to country music. <laughs> it's a big country. There's lots of different genres. And, and again, part of the fun, part of the thrill of, of listening to music is that you get to pick and choose. So had we but world in time, I was going to play a, a clip of Philip Seymour Hoffman as Lester Bangs, the storied critic, where he's doing kind of, there's snobbery and then there's kind of the reverse snobbery. And there's a scene right. in Almost Fam Famous where he's kind of flailing around somebody's radio studio and kind of yelling at the fact that, but the fact that Burton Cummings and the Guess Who are like way better than Jethro Tull and Jim Morrison. <laughs> and, 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 and making a compelling argument about it too. Like they, they get to the point really fast, whatever it is they're talking about so there's sort of that too whatever it is whatever the shibboleth is whatever the you know the 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 canonically embraced thing is one form of snobbery is to say well i hate that um but before i rather than have you react to that i want to get you on another topic here because yeah you talked about as long this. as you don't ask me to sing no no okay uh there's some there's some neighborhoods yeah where it's not okay to say you hate country there's some neighborhoods where it's not okay to say that you hate hip-hop and, and then the reverse of that but we really saw those heads kind of bust but just a couple of years ago uh, with this song, B1 Cat. Yeah, I'm gonna take my horse to the old town road. I'm gonna ride till I can't no more. I'm gonna take my horse to the old town road. I'm gonna ride till I can't no more. I got the horses in the back. Horse stock is attached. Head is mad at black. Got the boots. I don't have to play the rest of it for you. It was a song of the summer. You know it already. Yes. So, um, so, uh, so there was kind of a, as you write about, you know, a semi-ugly fight that kind of broke out about whether this could be on the country charts. You know, is it really right. country? Certainly Billy Ray Cyrus thought it was country. Um, so say a little bit more about what you saw in that fight. Well, you know, in the old days, uh, the country charts were largely determined by what country radio stations played. Mm. And, um, you know, that was a, a useful gauge of like what those stations think, thought that their audiences wanted to hear. In the streaming era, things get a little more complicated, right? If, if a song is popular and it kind of sounds like country music or sounds like what people think country music is, maybe it'll be included on the country chart. And so Old Town Road was a good example of a song that was like, kind of twangy, had lyrics about horses, dudes wearing a cowboy hat, um, and it's really popular. So people thought, well, maybe this is like a hit country song. And in one sense, maybe it was. But another way of thinking about that is to ask the question about the country audience. Like, yes, people in general are listening to this song, but are country listeners especially listening to that song? And, you know, you might want them to listen to that song. You, you might think that, you know, 
that that someone who loves Eric Church should also love Lil Nas X. But, you know, there's an empirical question of, well, do they love Lil Nas X? And, and one of the things that you found in Lil Nas X's career, first of all, he proved he was not a one hit wonder, right? He's had a whole series of hits, um, I think more than a lot of people would have predicted. And, and now he's like an A-list pop star. But that said, he's not really an A-list country star. It doesn't seem like his music resonates, especially in the country audience, as opposed to somewhere else. So you could make an argument that it was correct to say that this song was not especially popular in the world of country music and that he was not really a country singer and that it did not really belong on those charts. And and that's an argument not about what country music should sound like, but it's an argument about what country music does sound like. It's an argument about how that community functions right now. And I think we're learning something interesting if we learn that that community is not particularly excited about Lil Nas X, despite his cowboy hat. <laughs> so this leads us into a conversation about hip hop, although I, there's like so little time for this. I, I feel very constrained here. But but there's a way since since we just did Lil Nas X, let's go from 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 there to hip hop. Uh, this uh, obviously is a long and complicated conversation. Um, uh, although um, you well, you call it the most controversial genre in the country. Explain what you mean by that. Um, the thing about hip hop is there is. Um, there is an idea now that a lot of people would accept, I don't know if it's a majority of Americans, that hip hop is important, that it's great, that it's one of the great American art forms, right? Especially looking back at its history, a lot of people would be inclined to celebrate it. But the point I wanted to make when I was kind of going back through the history of hip hop, which is nearly 50 years old now, it emerges in the early to mid 70s in the Bronx, um, is that hip hop has never really been widely accepted by the cultural elite. There has never been a time um, when the most important cultural figures, when the top politicians, when professors across the country listened to what was happening in the world of hip hop and said, without reservation, this music is great. Yay for them. Like that's never happened. It's always been kind of marginal and unpopular, whether we're talking about the Run DMC era, the NWA era, whether we're talking about Jay-Z, you know, 50 Cent, no matter what is happening in the world of hip hop, usually there are a lot of people saying this stuff is terrible. This stuff is a problem. There's something wrong with hip hop. In fact, by the 90s, that had become conventional wisdom. Like something has gone wrong in hip hop. Maybe there's some people on the margins doing interesting music, but in general, there's a problem with this genre. And so throughout its history, that might be how hip hop has maintained some of its countercultural sensibility. That might be why hip hop even now seems like sort of cool, sort of dangerous, not quite mainstream, even though it's the most popular music by many measures in the country, is because it's never quite been accepted. It's always sort of been considered a problem. Again, sometimes for very good reasons, right? Often there are reasons why the things that you might hear in on a hip hop track are offensive to many people. But by being offensive, hip hop has maintained some of its cultural identity and, and maintained a genre that even now is a little bit apart from normal mainstream American culture. Yeah, I think the other thing, though, that hip hop does, I mean, I, I grant everything that you just said, but I think the other thing that hip hop has done very intelligently, I mean, to me, 
the exciting moments in music for me often are when somebody yanks the window of his or her genre up and looks across the alleyway and sees another genre. And so like Stevie Wonder, you know, suddenly, you know, for music of my mind and inner visions, well, there's jazz. I could really, you know, I could take so much from there and and bring it in here. Or Lyle Lovett's sort of saying, wow, I could could have a big band. I could put like, you know, eight horns on stage. You know, I could do this. I could do that. And and I think hip hop has done this a lot and and it's energized itself tremendously. My young friend Sam Haddleman texted me to say, check out the new Young Thug album. Album. It, it almost sounds more like a John Mayer album than a Young Thug album, you know. <laughs> and it's and, called punk. <laughs> it's called punk, yeah. So, um, and and I think one of the earlier examples of this, and we're going to B five cat, uh, is uh, an existing hip hop group and a slightly tiring, in need of revival, uh, rock star group. Here we go. So talk about an alliance that's good for both sides, Kellogg. Yeah. <laughs> and, and admit it, you want me to play this whole song right now. <laughs> well, as, as, as a kid who grew up in the 80s and yeah. grew up on Run DMC, I definitely heard the Run DMC version of Walk This Way before I heard the Aerosmith original. Mm. Um, I'm not sure I even knew there was an Aerosmith original when I, <laughs> when I first heard that song. And, you know, it's a great example of hip hop taking bits and pieces of the broader world and making them seem hip hop. Right. When the genre first emerges, it emerges on the back in the mainstream of a bunch of novelty songs. Right. Rapper's Delight by Sugar Hill Gang. Rapture by Blondie by most, you know, depending on how you measure is basically the first number one hip hop hit. And it's by Blondie. Um, And so people thought like, oh, maybe this is a novelty. Maybe this is a fad. But because the music develops such a strong connection to African-American working class neighborhoods in particular, such a strong cultural identity. It meant you could sound like just about anything and still be hip hop. And first of all, first you, you heard that in the music and you heard rappers finding ways to sample different records and bring, it, bring in bits and pieces of old rock records, even old country records, certainly working more closely with R&B. More recently, you've seen something kind of a little, a little more surprising, which is you've seen rappers not rap so much. You've seen a whole generation of rappers, you mentioned Young Thug, who like kind of sing Mm-hmm. But because of their self-presentation and because the cultural identity of hip-hop is still so strong, they come across as hip-hop acts, even when they're not rapping. And so it's yet another example of how having a strong cultural identity can give you more musical freedom, surprisingly. I talk about this in the 80s with hair metal. And these hair metal bands, their their presentation was so rock and roll and it's rock and roll this. And they got the, they got the spikes and the leather and the spandex and... And at the same time, they're doing power ballads, right? They're singing these kind of piano love songs, but because they're establishing their rock and roll credentials, 
culturally so strongly, they can kind of get away with these mushy love songs without anyone calling them on it. And, and you see this again and again. You see it in country music right now, where, where sometimes the country artists that double down the most heavily on, I'm the countryest guy in the world, I'm extremely country, me and my country friends do country stuff, those are the people that are often drawing from hip hop, drawing from rock and roll, having loud guitars, having hip hop beats, sometimes even rapping because their cult, because their country credentials are so strongly and asserted as culture that then they have a little more musical freedom. And so maybe with Run DMC and Aerosmith doing Walk This Way, you heard an early version of that. Yeah, I think the hip hop also benefits from the fact that it's not just a music genre. I mean, arguably anyway, it's an aesthetic that includes breaking and popping and graffiti and a whole bunch of other stuff. So that like in the early 80s, arguably one of the great and defining hip hop songs of the early 80s was Rocket by Herbie Hancock. Not because it's really a hip hop song, but because that's what they were breaking and popping to uh, out in the streets, at least around here. That's when that there was an awful lot. Of, a lot of those dancers were into that or want to be starting something by Michael Jackson. It, it's a form that can absorb other kinds of music music because it's not Be just honest were yeah. you doing some break dancing back in those days i nobody ever wants to see me break dance uh i'm <laughs> i'm pre-broken I, i'm so broken i can't break dance uh, but, but the truth is yeah. like a lot of these musical genres turn out to be not just music right mm. the reason we care about them is that a lot of them represent a broader culture right you could certainly say that of country music and and you know even if you're talking about dance music you know, yes, there are these great records, dance music records, but there's a whole world, there's a whole culture that goes along with it. And that's what that's what makes these forms of music interesting. And that's often what gives them a lot of their power. So, yeah, that's true for hip hop. But I think that's true for most forms of music. And that's part of what I mean when I say that these genres are partly communities and have a have a social identity that sometimes can can exist in a complicated relationship to the musical identity. Right. I was popping and locking while you were talking, so I, I didn't hear everything you said. <laughs> All right. We have to take a break here. We're talking to uh, Kelly Fasana about his new book, Major Labels. We'll take a break. We'll come back with a very short, too short final conversation. Well, this is no good. There's hardly any time left. I got to quickly thank a cat pastor. She's our technical producer. She's the one I'm yelling out B5 to, like I'm a jukebox or something. Uh, and uh, Lily Tyson, our senior producer, producer of this episode uh, with Kelly Fasane. Uh, his new book is Major Labels, A History of Popular Music in Seven Genres. I'm not going to name them all because that takes time. I th- I mean, we were going to talk about pop here, but the time is so short. And I think maybe I'd rather lean on the whole question of delivery systems, you know, and how big a difference they make. You know, I mean, we went from radio being dominant. If you go back far enough, you know, to like the early 60s, you know, AM top 40 radio might include the Beatles and, and Chuck Berry, but it also in the Supremes. But also you might hear Louis Armstrong singing Hello, Dolly. You might hear Eddie Arnold singing a country song. You might hear Sinatra. So radio transformed, got more divided up into genres. Then we had MTV, which you write about in the book. You know, we've moved into streaming now. People think maybe that streaming is the death, death of genres because, 
you can sort of pick and choose so easily. I don't know. How important is the delivery system and what do you think it's it's doing to this whole question? Well, certainly delivery systems are important. You know, genres were supported by all these institutions, right? Radio stations, record stores, magazines, record companies, all these places were using genres to help get music to people. And But what I really learned writing this book was that there are always moments like this where these boundaries seem to be fading, right? The the critic Nelson George, who wrote a lot about R&B and was an editor at Billboard for many years, um, took one look at Michael Jackson and Prince going pop in the 80s, achieving huge success and sort of crossing over. And he writes the death of rhythm and blues because he's worried that all of this pop crossover success is going to make it so that rhythm and blues doesn't really mean anything as a category anymore, right? you know, on MTV, you see Michael Jackson all the time. So maybe like maybe the energy is moving away from R&B as a sort of self-contained world. And you see some of that now, right, where if we don't need radio stations, if we don't need record stores and a lot of people are getting their music on these streaming services, maybe everyone's picking and choosing. People sometimes talk about Spotify pop and the idea that from the kid Leroy to Lil Nas X uh, to Post Malone, like all these musicians are mixing and matching and maybe there won't be genres. And, you know, I don't want to make firm predictions, but but what I do suspect is that as long as music plays this important role in our lives, as long as we're using music to define who we are, we're going to form communities around that. And the communities might look a little different. It's possible that in the streaming era, we see different groupings, right? Some, some people have talked about the emergence of, instead of genres, you have groups organized around one artist in particular. So instead of being, yeah, you could be a K-pop fan, but maybe it's more about being a BTS fan, right? And that's your favorite of these K-pop, Korean pop groups, and you're going to really fight for them all day long on the internet, right? And maybe then you have a culture, really, that's organized around one act and and advocacy for that one act. So that might be one thing that happens. But one way or another, these two contradictory things we want from music. We want it to give us this sense of freedom, of exploring, and we want it to give us this sense of community, of feeling like home. And and these things are not quite compatible. So I think that's why you get this seesaw back and forth over the years. And maybe we're living in one of those moments now where everything is kind of coming together a little bit. And a lot of people are listening to some of the same music that sounds kind of similar. And maybe what we're doing is we're getting ready for the next backlash. My friend Steve Metcalf, who's often on this show talking about music, uh, says that one of the most underplayed but revolutionary changes in music delivery systems goes back really to the earliest iPods, and that's the shuffle feature. Uh, You know, we're almost out of time here, but I'd love to hear you just react to that idea that the shuffle feature kind of, you know, pushes us in yet another direction. Well, yeah, the shuffle feature, it, 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 Um, exaggerates a thing that had happened already, right? Like you can get an album and go home and sit and listen to the album, right? That was something that people used to do, especially I think in the 1970s. But a lot of the times the way we hear music is a little more shuffled anyways, like, right? Commercial radio is a giant shuffle system. And so the idea that we can bring that home into our own homes and be DJs, yes, in some ways it de-emphasizes the albums and, and popularizes playlists. But again, if an album is just a group of songs, I think people are still interested in groups of songs. Musicians are still interested in making them. And one of the things I like about Shuffle is it's a little bit of a lie detector. If you're putting something on Shuffle, then deep down, you don't know what's coming up. 
and you know whether you're happy or unhappy to hear it. So <laughs> I often use shuffle as a kind of reality check. I think I like this thing, but does it really make me happy when it comes up? Yeah. It's such a different, I mean, we're out of time here, but reading your section on MTV, I just remember the old, my, my son was little and he was into Hammer and we liked that video where James Brown was kind of, you know, extracted into some kind of animated thing. But you just have to sit there and watch MTV for two and a half hours <laughs> until they play it. it comes around again. Yeah. yeah. So, so we, I think we're, we, we have a lot more control right now. This has been so much fun. And really, I could talk to you easily for another hour, but you probably have other radio shows to do. Uh, <laughs> the book is uh, Major Labels, A History of Pop music in seven genres. Those would be rock, R&B, country, punk, hip-hop, dance, and pop. Califasane has been our guest today. Thanks so much for doing this, man. Thanks. This has been great fun. Yeah, I just did a Kai Rizdahl thing. I called somebody man. I don't usually do that. Um, all right, so we're going to go now. Uh, we're going to leave you as promised, I think, with Cassandra Wilson singing Last Train to Clarksville. Because why not? Because it's great. That's why. Don't be slow. No, no, no. I don't know if I'm ever coming